We'll do verses 18 of chapter 9 down to the end of 10, which is verse 32. Let me read these first two verses. Genesis 9, starting at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So this is the last story we have concerning the life of Noah. And it's really a transition away from Noah to his three sons and their descendants. And we've met them already, but we're seeing them again here. And we're going to see them a lot in chapter 10 as well. Shem, or Shem, as it would have been pronounced, which meant name. And Shem was Noah's firstborn, so it makes sense to have a firstborn son and call them name because the idea is you're taking on my name, you're taking on the family line, so to speak. Ham was not ham like pork or pigs like we think about it. The word there is ham, so there was a ch, that chet sound. And it, it means hot or it means warm. There doesn't really seem to be much significance to these names theologically, but it's just interesting. And then japheth, which would have been yafet, and it means to be opened or extended. There will be a little play on words later when Noah asks that the Lord will expand the borders of Japheth. These were the three sons of Noah who had gone into the ark with him, with their wives. As far as we know, these were his only sons, although the text is silent on whether or not he didn't have other children who did not come onto the ark. But as far as we know, it's just these three. And because of the flood, we now have these three families remaining on the earth. And that's it. And they're going to be responsible for its repopulation. So before we get into this story here, I want us to take a minute and appreciate the pressure that these three must have been under. Not only because they're the new patriarchs and the world is going to begin again and begin anew with them, but that they are the sons of Noah himself. Of all the people in the whole world, God picked Noah, the righteous Noah, to build the ark and to take them onto the ark with him. And after all they'd been through, I mean, it would have been no picnic being on that ark for one year. They weren't floating for a year, but they didn't open the door for a year. It might have made you go a little bit crazy. There's only so many games of solitaire you can play. Here's the thing, not just biblically, but also in life, great men, by great, I mean accomplished and skilled men. They don't always pass on that greatness to their children. And you can see historically there is a pattern of the children of great men falling to pieces under that pressure. Classic example in American history is the Adams family. You had John Adams, and he had several children. He had one who was named John Quincy Adams, who you may know went on and also became president. But he had another son named Charles Adams, who was a younger son, and did not handle the pressure like his older brother did. He was brought to Europe with his dad, but when he was just a young boy, he, he needed to go home because he was missing his mom so much. And as he grew up, he went into a legal practice too, but wasn't any good at it. And eventually he became an alcoholic and his family left him and came to live with President Adams and his wife. And there ended up being a schism between Charles Adams and his father, and they never spoke to each other again at a certain point. Meanwhile, John Quincy Adams went on to become a diplomat and senator and president and congressman. Very different 
And you can imagine that man watching his dad and his brother and his family go on and do great things. Not just doing well, but doing great things. And here he can't seem to get it together. If he had been born into a different family, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. He would have been just like everybody else. So we're familiar with that kind of pressure. And this is the kind of thing that Shem, Ham, and Japheth are going through. And maybe you've experienced that bitterness as well. Because it doesn't just come towards parents. This is that, that real or perceived comparison between you and somebody else that can generate bitterness. As you compare yourself to another person and you don't measure up, it makes you bitter toward them. You ever experienced that before? Even if you didn't feed it and let it go on, maybe you thought, oh, that's not a good thing to think. But, you know, it passed through the brain, so to speak. We can have that anger towards many different people. Maybe there's somebody who does better than you in your career. Maybe somebody who's in the same field as you, started the same time as you, had about the same advantages of you, and yet they take off and do incredible things, and you're just moving at a normal average pace. Or maybe you've been doing your thing for a while. You've been doing your, your job and in your field for a few years, and you've made a name for yourself, and then here comes this young hotshot who just blows past you out of nowhere. Bitterness can come in there. Somebody who's better than us at a sport or a creative art. I'm a musician. I love to play guitar. I love to write songs and sing. There are times where I can't even enjoy somebody's music because I get so jealous. Catelyn will tell you, I'll walk around the house, just one. If I could write one song like that. They've got, they've got 15 songs that are just blow you out of the water, and here I am, just one, you know. Or you're, you used to play football or basketball or ice hockey, whatever your thing is, and you see somebody on TV, and you start to realize that at my age, these athletes are younger than me. These aren't, these aren't things that I could aspire to be. The, the young hotshots are younger than me. That's past in my life. Somebody who's more spiritual than you, even. Or you want to do right by the Lord, and you just can't get it together, and there she is. Little Miss Perfect. Walking in here, everything's together, no problems with her life, everything's great. Or somebody that can control themselves in a way that you can't. Maybe there's a certain sin that's a point of frustration for you because you do good in every other area, but then like your, your temper, you know, you just can't get that together. Or you can't control your, your tongue. And then you see this person over there and they, they have no problem with that. And you sit in there and think, if that person did that to me, I would have blown up in their face. Even politicians or historical figures where you just look, oh, you think you're better than me? That's really what that attitude is, right? You think you're better than me? Objects of resentment and bitterness. If we feel like somebody else exposes our own shortcomings, we can start to hate them secretly. Even though they've never done anything to us, and they might think we're all great friends. You ever say that to yourself? Somebody comes up to you and says, hello, how are you? And talks to you a few minutes, and you're like, what are you talking to me like we're friends for? Well, they don't know that you hate them. <laughs> and we can even start to rejoice when that person falls. Somebody who you feel like has always been better than you, and then they mess up, and you're like, ha, ha, that's what you get. Welcome to the rest of us. You thought you were better. It's very similar to there was a man named Shimei during Absalom's rebellion, when David's son rebelled against him and staged a coup and took over the country. And there's a whole long story there, but David has to leave Jerusalem with his attendants and his loyal servants. And there's a guy named Shimei that they pass, who was of Saul's clan. Now, when Saul was king, that was prestige and nobility to their clan. And here comes David, and he's leaving Jerusalem. He's running for his life. And it says Shimei started to run alongside them, 
cursing them, taunting them, picking up rocks and throwing rocks at them and throwing dirt in the air. Very, you know, mature behavior. <laughs> and Joab says, you want me to bring you his head, David? That's the kind of guy Joab was. And David said, no, just let him be because maybe the Lord told him to do this to me and you can read the rest of the story for yourself. But, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that in you. Maybe I'm not throwing rocks and throwing dirt in the air, but... It just the sun is a little brighter when you find out that that person got caught doing something or when we all found out that Tom Brady was deflating footballs. The rest of us were like, oh, well, that's why. He's not actually that good. He just, you know, he cheats. As a Miami Dolphins fan, I, I really appreciated that. But we know that that's not right, don't we? That's why we're laughing. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not delight in evil. And that can be a couple things. Love does not delight in wrongdoing. Or love does not delight when something bad happens to somebody. When something evil befalls the person you're jealous of or that you secretly resent. Love does not delight in that. Like, well, good. I'm glad to see you finally got what you deserve. But love rejoices with the truth. You know, to the world, when we discover that someone is a failure, even in one point, even if they're great, in points 1 through 99, you hit point 100 and there's a failure there, it becomes a point of derision, doesn't it? And twisted pleasure. Aha, see? Anytime any Christian does anything that is just a little bit off, it's a headline, isn't it? Because you thought you were better than us. It turns out you're not. But that's not to be the attitude we have among one another. We're going to see today two examples of how to handle the discovery of another person's sin. One of them is vicious and very common. It's the way everybody handles the discovery of sin. When you find out that somebody has failed and messed up, this is how most people respond. But the other way is a merciful way. Instead of choosing to use it to their own advantage, they're going to choose to show mercy instead. We ought to be glad for somebody who does better than us. Glad for them. Might not make you feel great, but you can rejoice for them. Somebody who sets a better example and calls us higher and like, hey, that might not be my thing, but it's your thing and you do it well. Congratulations. That's great. And if somebody who has been set on a pedestal, maybe by everybody else, and then they fall off or they trip a little bit, they're revealed to be imperfect, we ought to recognize that you also fall into that category called imperfect and that you should show them mercy in that case. Not kick them while they're down, not grind their face into the dust, but say, hey, I love you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm actually going to help you back up because I'm not going to define my life by the way you act or use your failure as an excuse to justify my own. So let's read this story now, verse 20, and we're going to go down to verse 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, note for the second time they refer to Ham as the father of Canaan. That's going to become significant in a minute. He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
Short little story, but I think there's some significance there. So it's after the flood. Stands for reason. They're going to need food. So Noah becomes a man of the soil, it says. He begins to grow things. Maybe he was too old at age 601 to be a hunter and chase down all them animals. So he became a farmer and a vintner. He makes wine. He grows a vineyard. And on one occasion, Noah drank too much of the wine he had made. He got himself drunk. There are a lot of firsts in the book of Genesis. This one is not so great. This is the first instance of drunkenness we have in the Bible. Now, some very nice people have tried to come to Noah's defense here and say, well, Noah didn't know that the wine was going to get him drunk. He just thought it was going to be fine. And then next thing you knew, he was drunk. Or people have said, and this is very speculative, well, maybe before the flood, wine didn't get you drunk. And then after the flood, it did. I don't know why that would be the case, but that's what some have suggested. They're trying to come to Noah's defense, which I guess is admirable, but that's not what the text says. It says that Noah drank too much, got drunk, passed out naked in his tent. And this is not the primary point of this message, but I, I should take the time to address this. Drunkenness is only ever considered to be a sin in Scripture. Drinking itself is not prohibited, but drinking to the point of inebriation is. And there's a lot of warnings in the Bible that warn you against playing with fire, you could say. Proverbs 23, I'm going to just read this passage, it's a little long. 23 verses 29 through 33. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. There's another part of Proverbs where it says that to drink strong drink is not for kings, my son. And that really emphasizes the point that the Lord is going to make here. The New Testament is even more straightforward. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And nowadays we have to add to that, yes, this also applies to getting high off of anything else. Because it's not the liquid itself that is sinful. It's the result of drinking too much that is sinful. And the same thing goes for medication or any other drug you care to name. In fact, there's places in the New Testament where it refers to sorcery, and that word in Greek is pharmakia, which is where we get our word for pharmacy. So it was that sorcery was tied up with drugs. It was tied up with smoking things or eating things, and they still do this in India for some of their rituals. They're, they will all smoke marijuana and get high and commune with the gods, and the Native Americans had peyote and things like that that they would drink or take to get to an elevated state of mind, and they thought they were communing with the gods, and especially the witch doctors and the magicians would do this. So the warning against sorcery specifically names don't take the drugs that the sorcerers do because it leads to the same sin that drunkenness does. What's the point? Anything that removes self-control from you is sinful. We are made in God's image to have complete command of our senses at all times. We need to always be able to choose wisdom, to choose righteousness, 
And inebriation takes that away. You're no longer going to make wise decisions. People don't get high and then make wiser decisions than they were before. You don't make more righteous decisions when you're under the influence. You all know that. Which is why it says in Proverbs that a king should not be drinking strong drink because he's got to make wise national war decisions. So you don't need to be in a place where you can't make a decision like that. And at best, drunkenness is sensuality. Oh, it just feels so good. Well, you're not supposed to make decisions that way as a Christian. You don't make decisions based on what feels good. At its worst, it's an escape. I want to get away from reality. I want to get away from responsibility. I want to forget. Well, that's not what the Lord has taught us to do. He's taught us to confront those things and to deal with them wisely. And this is countercultural, obviously. Listen to the radio for five minutes. But it's biblical, and it's wise, And it's for this reason that many Christians just choose to abstain entirely. It's not worth the trouble. No, thank you. Not for me. And that's up for you to judge. Jesus drank wine often. John the Baptist never did. And John the Baptist was considered the greatest man who ever lived. So if you ever wonder about this, look at the example of Noah here. This is the ark builder. This is the guy that was righteous in his generation. This is the man that God chose to repopulate the whole earth. You're going to be my new Adam, so to speak. And here he is, drunk, passed out, and naked in his tent. This is what God wants us to avoid, shameful behavior. You do things when you are inebriated that you would not normally do, which is why the Lord says, don't get that way. You need to always be ready to make a wise decision. Count how many times in the New Testament we're commanded to be sober-minded. And that's not specifically talking about being drunk, but it's kind of hard to be sober-minded when you are drunk, if you know what I mean. So here he is. This is Noah. This is quite a scene here. And I should mention very briefly that the Bible never tries to paper over the imperfections of its heroes. Have you noticed that? It's not as it's called hagiography, which is I'm going to write a book that is going to turn a normal person into a super saint that no one can ever attain to. The Bible is very honest about its heroes, although they are heroes. You read about Noah. We're going to read about Abraham and all the stuff he did. We're going to read about Jacob and all the crazy things he did. You guys know the story of Samson, the stories of Jonah. Lord, if you're going to save them, then why don't you just kill me? John the Baptist was in prison and was doubting. Are you really the Messiah? How could you doubt that, John? You're the one that said, here's the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. Peter, right? Why does God do this? Well, it's to show us that this is how God sees us. God sees it all. There's nothing hidden from God. You know, we can conceal things from each other, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to that because there's no need to be going around letting everybody know all the horrible things that you do all the time or all the horrible things that you think. But the Lord knows And we can never forget that the Lord knows. But it also reminds us that God in his mercy is willing to pass over those things and look at what's good and instead judge us that way. That's the mercy of God. You know the story of David. David is lazy and stays home from war, goes out on his roof and sees a young woman bathing, calls her into his home, and it's kind of hard to say no to the king if you understand what's going on. They have a baby together. He gets her husband, who's his friend, to come home and tries to get him drunk so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. 
and think that the baby's his. Uriah refuses to do that, so David has him killed. That's what David did. But after his life, do you know what God said about David in 1 Kings 14, 8? He says, he was my servant who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. Now we hear that and go, uh, Lord, are you sure? You sure about that, Lord? What about the time when he numbered the people when he wasn't supposed to? And you sent a plague upon the land. What about the time that he ignored what Amnon did to his sister and that led to Absalom's rebellion? What about all that? But the Lord's like, I, I don't look at those things. I look at the good of my children. Those who had that faith in me and have that repentant heart, God's like, I, I love showing mercy to my children. Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The Lord delights in mercy. The world has a lot of gods, a lot of gods that delighted in war, Gods that delighted in being sneaky. Gods that delighted in death. We have a God that delights in mercy. You'd almost feel selfish if you said, I think I'm going to come up with a God who overlooks sin and only ever shows mercy. Well, that kind of sounds selfish, don't you think? But this is what the Lord does. And so by showing us a true picture of these heroes of the faith, it teaches us to show mercy to each other. Because if God shows mercy to us, we can show mercy to each other. And also to give glory to God, because we know that there is no one who's perfect. There is nobody who's without sin except for Jesus Christ. Not to teach us to love one another and to be patient with one another. But we tend to act more like Ham than Christ when it comes to each other's sins. Rather than show mercy, rather than judge with compassion, we can be vicious with one another, can't we? He comes into his father's tent, and it says he saw the nakedness of his father before reporting it to his brothers. Now, this has generated a lot of speculation because it doesn't seem like a very bad thing to us. And going all the way back to the rabbinical tradition, there are a lot of weird, sordid ideas of what actually went down here. There have been some who speculated that Ham committed a sexual act with his father or even with his mother. And there's one very strange tradition that believes that Ham actually castrated his father at this time. To which I come back to my favorite phrase, which is, what does it say, though? It doesn't say that. And, and people say, well, the language can technically permit for that. Okay, but the language doesn't give us specifics, so it could encompass many different things. Silence is no argument for something, right? And it also fails to answer how his brothers covering him up with a blanket fixes the situation, especially if there was some kind of violence going on. What is more likely here, and I think the obvious thing here, is that Ham saw his father in a vulnerable state, a shameful, sinful state, and he took delight in the downfall of the great righteous Noah. That, well, look at you now, old man. And he tried to share it with his brothers. And this seems like a minor sin to us, but... It, again, it doesn't say very much. Maybe Ham was boasting about this. Maybe he was just shooting off at the mouth about it. Maybe he was trying to use it as an opportunity to rebel against his fathers. Come and look, look at Dad. And we're supposed to follow him as the great righteous example? I say, we go our own ways. Who needs him anymore? Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. 
Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Talking about people who try to get their friends and their neighbors either to, in this case, be drunk or to try to get them to do something that's a moral compromise so that you can gloat over them. He says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. You want to glory over somebody by bringing them down? The Lord says, woe to you. You're going to have shame instead of glory. Now, Ham was not responsible for Noah's sin, but he was glorying and cackling over the downfall of a good man, and that is a shameful thing to do. We ought to know better. He should have known better. You ever had this done to you? When you're good at something, or maybe you're put on a pedestal of some kind, and people look up to you, and then you mess up, and then people pile on and mock you for it. There comes a point when you're good at something that you don't really want to do it in front of people anymore. Because if I do it in front of them and I mess up, I've got nothing to gain. Because either I do it and nothing changes, or I do it and fail, and then they all laugh at me and, and pile on and I lose what I had. Maybe you've been on the opposite side. You're the one hooting and hollering when the good kid messes up. When that one kid in the youth group that never did anything wrong, and then they let slip and they curse, and oh, there you go. I knew it. I knew you were too perfect. Or even just little things, little silly things, like when the, the top prospect just fails. Or everyone's, everybody's predicting this is going to happen, and then something else happens, and you just sit at home laughing to yourself, like, ah, you thought you were something, didn't you? Why do we do this? Why do we do this to each other? Why do siblings do this to each other? Why do little kids tattle? Mommy, she pushed me. Okay, are you hurt? No, but she pushed me. Better come do something about it. Or they'll run and say, Daddy, he's doing that thing you told him not to do. He jumped off the bed. Daddy, he hit somebody. He pushed. I'm like, well, why do you come tell me? I just thought you should know. <laughs> why do we do that to each other? There's two reasons I think we do this. Number one is we want to criticize the standard that is being used to judge and evaluate people here. We want to say, see, nobody's that good. It's too hard. It's impossible to be good. Nobody can live their whole life without doing this. Nobody can be that great at something without cheating. You're tearing the standard down to your level. Or you're fine with the standard, and you're going to use this as an example to step on them and boost yourself up a little bit higher. I would never have done something like that. If I was in that position, I would never have done that. If I was famous, <laughs> I would never mess up my money that way. I would never do something sexually weird if I was famous and had a whole lot of money. I'm just too great of a person. What you, you're stepping on people to make yourself look better. Let's look at these two things. Both of them exist to puff us up at someone else's expense. First, when you, you look at somebody who messes up and you say, well, the standard that we're using to judge each other is useless. I have a very clear example of this fixed in my brain. And I'm going to use politicians as an example, but it's not a political statement. I remember a few years ago when Sarah Palin was running for vice president. And, of course, they're a Christian family, and that was kind of their whole thing. Was, oh, look, some Christians are going to be there. And her daughter got pregnant before she was married, and that was a big thing. Oh, look, see, the Christians are 
they're not as good as we thought they were. And I remember seeing this woman on TV, some channel or other, and she says, all we've learned from this is the Christian idea of saving sex for marriage doesn't work. It's impossible. There's nobody that keeps that standard. We've got to stop it and get rid of it because it's too hard. And I was sitting there like, how dare you? You know, yelling at the TV to somebody that doesn't care what I have to say, you know. What, what are you doing? You're saying, well, see, nobody can keep it. Not even me. Therefore, I'm justified in living this way. Whatever your petty sin is that you wish wasn't in the Bible, but it is, and you're stuck with it. You see somebody messing. That just seems like that's a little harsh, don't you think? Or number two, we step on the one who falls so that we can stand taller. And social media has only exacerbated this. Goodness gracious, somebody messes up and everybody feels obligated to tell the whole world how much they disapprove of it. Some celebrity that you didn't give a hill of beans about yesterday, now all of a sudden they've said something offensive and you're going to tell the whole world, I would never, ever do that. Maybe I should be rich and famous. Maybe I should be pick whatever your thing is. Very publicly, of course. It's not enough just to say to your wife or to say to your friends, like, ah, this really is not right to say that, is it? No, we've got to pile on. We've got to tell people. We've got to go out in public and, hey, did you hear what they did? It's really interesting how the, the tabloids have moved out of the weird grocery store aisle to now, like, everybody's involved in that all the time, right? Both of these things, they're unworthy of a Christian. They're evidence of, of smallness of character. You can't stand on your own faults and your own merits. You've got to measure yourself by other people to boost yourself up. This should not be said of us. Despite what everybody else, let them do what they're going to do. We don't do that. When you come across the failure of another person, whether inadvertently, sometimes it happens, you come across something that someone's done, you didn't mean to, you weren't planning on it, it just happens. Or maybe it is a public thing. You do not need to pile on or chime in, or make things worse for that person. We used to tell this to our high school leaders. We said, if a kid comes to you weeping over something they've done, you do not need to spend time explaining to them why they were wrong. Especially if a, if a young man comes up to you who's been struggling with pornography, and he's broken and shaking, and he's so embarrassed, you don't need to sit there and spend 10 minutes tell him all the ways he's wrong. He knows that. He knows he's wrong. Your job is to put an arm around him and say, hey, I love you. Let's walk through this together. But we'll do this for people we've never even met or people that we're just kind of tangentially related to. You know what happens, by the way, when you do that? When people, you gain a reputation for being somebody that dogs people every time they fall. No one's going to want to be your friend because they're going to know you're the person that if I mess up around them, everybody's going to know about it. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. You might want to write this in the margins of this passage. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus said the way that you judge people is how people are going to judge you. And how I'm going to judge you too, the Lord says. If you're ruthless in your judgment... And you cloak it in phrases like, well, we can't tolerate sin. No one asked you. You don't need to stand up and be all ruthless in your job. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm done. Quit. Don't want to hear from them ever again. Or if you're snobbish in your attitude, somebody at work, and you're just like, well, hello there. You kind of get that look on your face. I know what you did. 
So I don't want to hear it from you anymore. All you can expect when you inevitably fail is to have that ruthlessness and that snobbery aimed right at you. And then you're going to say something like, maybe we should be nicer to each other. <laughs> yes, you're right. But you don't have to go through that to learn that lesson. The way you treat people when they're down is how they're going to treat you when you're down. If you're the one that is showing mercy and love to people when they stumble and they fall, when you stumble and you fall, they're going to come to your defense. They're going to love you. They're going to hold you up. They're going to cover you as Shem and Japheth did. Look at their example. When they were made aware of their father's failure, they didn't gloat. They took a garment, they backed into the tent, they covered him up, and they walked back out. They covered up the nakedness, the shame, and the sin of their father. They had the reputation of their dad in their hands. And they chose to preserve it and to cover up his sin. They could have all had one big family meeting the next day and said, Well, Dad, what do you have to say for yourself? You think you're some big righteous man? Well, we all know what you did. I just don't think we can stand to benefit from your leadership anymore. They didn't do that. They didn't say, Kids, don't hang around Grandpa Noah anymore. He goes off sometimes. What did they do? They kept it to themselves, and they covered him up. Now, you might hear that and think, Well, isn't it wrong to cover up sin? Well, yes and no. It's wrong to cover up your own sin when you're being a hypocrite about it. And it's wrong to cover up another person's sins, you could say, when there's victims involved. If somebody is hurting people and you covering it up is just going to allow that to continue to happen, then, okay, you might need to deal with it. But there are ways, even in that, to deal with someone's sin without going through public shame and exposure. You do the scarlet letter thing. We're going to tack a red A to them for the rest of their life so everybody knows the mistake they made. God hardly ever does that. God sees all the mess you do, and he never holds you up to the whole world and says, Aha, see? This is who they really are. So why do we think that we have the right to do that to each other? Matthew 18, Jesus told us, here's how you do it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You can see the process here starts small and it starts slow. It says, don't, don't stand up in the congregation and say, that man. It says, you go to him privately alone. You say, hey, buddy, that wasn't good. That wasn't right. Hey, I came across this thing. And is it true? I want to ask you. He says, even if he blows it off and spits in your face, take some people with you. Say, hey, we're really serious about this. We want, we want to talk about this with you. There's a process. You only bring it public when there is persistent refusal to repent and seek help. But even initiating church discipline is a heart-rending process. And just because... We are permitted, just because we have biblical room to proceed forward with judgment and correction doesn't mean that we have to. There are folks that I've, I've heard, well, I, just, I feel terrible, but we've got we've to ruin this person's life because of something they did. It's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Go and, and deal with it with just the two of you. Well, that would be covering up sin. Yes. The Lord covered your sin. You can do the same for somebody else. 
Shem and Japheth set a more gracious, Christ-like example than their brother. They're being loyal and they're being kind. They're not making a big deal out of it. They're just quietly and unobtrusively covering up his sin. There is something to be said for loving a person by covering what they've done to give them permission to get back up and try again. If you've ever read or if you've seen Les Miserables, the very beginning, there's a, there's a man who was in prison for years and he escapes and stays the night at a house of a priest. And the priest gives him shelter and gives him a place to stay. And in the middle of the night, he robs him and takes all his stuff, knocks him out and heads for the hills. The next morning, he shows up. The police have brought him back and they said, hey, we found this guy that robbed your house. And he said, you gave him all this stuff just to keep. And we knew he was obviously lying. And the priest says, Oh, yeah, I did give him all that stuff. But you know what? You forgot the silver, too. Take the silver. Off you go. And the police are like, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry. Uh, sorry to trouble you. And if they leave, he lied to the police for this guy. And then he says, all right, so now the rest is up to you. You can take that and you can go start a new life. He says, I just bought your life back. Now, what are you going to do with it? And the whole book is about that one moment changing the trajectory of that guy's life forever. We can do that for each other. When you're exposed to something some awful someone has done, but just being the one to lay a blanket over them and say, hey, let's just try again. Let's just do better. You can gain a brother, as Jesus said. There's no need to report it to anyone or hold it over their head. A good friend is going to be merciful. There's a friend I know who was put into this position where a friend of his committed a sad, gross sin but all of that guy's friends were now posting it up online publicly and like these big long things of all the junk he'd done and his wife was leaving him and was getting everybody together and going to all his friends and sending him all this stuff. And they come to him and they say, if you don't join with us and, and kick him out, then you can't, you can't be our friend anymore. Then you're not a good person. He calls me up like, I don't know what to do. I said, you can be the one man in that guy's life that sticks by him. You don't approve of a thing he did. But you love him enough to say, I'm not going to shame you. Now let's get it together. And guess what? There's only one person left in that guy's life that he's willing to talk to and listen to. Mercy, you guys. The same goes for public failures. Why do you have to demonstrate how shocked you are when somebody does some horrible thing? We're addicted to that as a culture now, aren't we? Some Christian figure, some political figure, some musician, some actor, some local official, they say or do something that isn't great. What do we got to do? We've got to tell the world what we think about it. You don't have to do that. You want people to do that to you? Well, if I don't say anything, then I'm approving it. No, you're not. I hereby release you from that. You are not approving anything when you say nothing. And if somebody accuses you of that, you can tell them to take a hike in Jesus' name. We don't have to demonstrate how shocked we are. Turn to John chapter 8. This is what you are to do. John chapter 8. You know this story, but let's read it in this context here. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus was fully within his rights to condemn this woman. He had the law on his side. He had his righteousness as the Son of God on his side. And instead he said, I'm not going to condemn you. That's mercy. And that's how we are to act towards one another. This is what Shem and Japheth did for their father. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I adjure each one of you to be merciful people. There are folks who live in the church, walking on eggshells, scared to death that they're going to be found out for that thing that they messed up with. But they feel like they can't talk to anybody because if they talk to anybody, it's all going to come crashing down and they're going to get condemned. None of us wants to continue in sin. None of us wants each other to continue in sin. But we can't be like wolves. Or the minute somebody does something, we turn on each other and tear them to pieces. We're supposed to be sheep. Sheep don't have teeth that can tear each other apart. They're kind, they're fluffy, and they leave the discipline up to the shepherd. This is a place where people can find mercy. If you want to play the game of seeking out how everyone around you has messed up, guess what? You will find it. If you want to go and investigate each person's life and see all the ways that they're wrong, you're going to find them but we're going to end up with a bitter, angry world because no one is innocent and no one likes being exposed. And the cycle goes on and on and on. And you know that you're just as guilty, don't you? It's not as if Japheth and Shem and Ham could say, well, we've never done anything wrong. If you know you're following short, make a change. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't find somebody else who does something worse to make you feel better about the things you do. And Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of what? Gentleness. gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you've got to confront somebody over something, gently. Gentleness. Well, if I approach them gently, then... They're just going to think they can do it again. Okay. That's really not your problem, is it? We're all sinners. We all have parts of our lives we're ashamed of. The church is to be a place where people feel so loved and feel so free that they not only feel comfortable confessing to one another, but they feel like this is a place where I can find help for the future. Not a place where I've got to keep things covered up so that everybody thinks it's still okay. And there are things that are shocking. This situation is a shocking thing. But if we're going to live in this world, we might as well live mercifully. If everybody started showing mercy to one another. God chose not to expose our sins, but to cover our sins with the blood of his own son, didn't he? That's the Christian way. And I think we've seen, without laying the blame at anybody's feet, as our society has turned its attention more and more to justice, you're starting to see the mercy kind of ebb away, aren't we? There's no room for mercy. There's no room for failure. There's no room for error. This is where the Christians can step back in and say, yes, justice, but also mercy. 
It'll be refreshing and attractive for people to find a place where they're shown mercy and not judgment. Well, let's keep reading verses 24 through 27, and we'll go faster to the end of this now. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Be who? Canaan. Circle that. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah wakes up, finds out about it, does not say how. I'm inclined to think that Ham was probably mouthing off about it. Maybe using this as an opportunity to promote himself. Maybe he just woke up and remembered what happened. It doesn't say. But then in verses 25 through 27, we have a curse and a blessing pronounced on the descendants of Noah. It's a prophecy, really. We don't have power to curse and bless each other except by appealing to the Lord. But what I want you to notice here, Noah does not curse Ham. Do you see that? Who does Noah curse? Canaan, his son, his fourth son, Canaan, which is why twice we saw Ham identified as Canaan's father. Now, first, this seems unfair because God has told us in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere that he does not judge sons for the sins of their father. Although it does say in Exodus 34 that the Lord punishes iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But there are a few options here. Number one, it could be that Noah is cursing Ham's youngest son because he was Noah's youngest son. So there's a connection there. Option two, Noah is trying to show mercy to Ham by only cursing one of his sons rather than all four. Number three, it could be that Canaan was somehow involved with this situation that the story just doesn't give us. Maybe Canaan was part of it. He was part of the one causing trouble and carousing. Or number four, it could be that Noah saw the same character that Ham had developing in his son Canaan. And he knew that the same thing that drove Ham to act this way was also living in his youngest son Canaan. I think any of these options could make sense. I think that fourth one has a lot to say for it because we do know that God is just. And we also know that Canaan and his descendants are going to live up to that horrible reputation. So the Lord was wise in his judgment, however it came about. So let's look at this here. First, we have the curse on Canaan, who says would be a servant of servants to the rest of the world. I want to address something. Praise the Lord, this is no longer taught anywhere but it still needs to be addressed because it was taught for a long time and it's a blight on church history. Noah is not pronouncing in verse 25 a curse upon black people to be enslaved by white people. This was preached and taught in the church. The curse of Ham. There were pamphlets that were spread about the U.S. to justify that. Does it even say the curse of Ham? Curse of who? Canaan. Ham had four sons. We're going to see this. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Canaan had children that lived in Canaan, right? Cush was the father of what are called the Ethiopian or the Nubian nations, the black Africans as we would call them today. So not only is he not cursing Ham, he's not even cursing the right son of Ham, if that's what he's trying to say. And we're all laughing at this because it's so ridiculous, but it was used terribly in the past. Heaven helped those teachers when they stood before the Lord. Canaan was the father of the nations that inhabited the promised land. 
So when was the curse of Canaan fulfilled? When the Israelites went into the promised land and drove them out. Doesn't that make a lot more sense anyway? Colossians 3 verse 11, you know this one. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a quote from a commentator named Derek Kidner, and I thought this put it perfectly. Any attempt to grade the branches of mankind by an appeal to these verses is re-erecting what God has demolished at the cross. Now, you see, the Lord uh, was putting favor upon these people. You're, you are totally missing the point. Every generation, unfortunately, has its perversities of interpretation. It's what it says in Timothy about heaping up teachers to scratch their itching ears. But the antidote to that is to what? Preach the word. When you read it like this in context, you would never come to that. But if you went hunting for an excuse to do what you already wanted to do, all kinds of crazy things can come up. But anyway, verse 26, so Canaan is to be cursed. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord. He's using the covenant name of God. I am Jehovah, Yahweh is what he says there. Very significant because we don't see that word very often until we get to the book of Exodus. An indication, as we know, that through Shem would be fulfilled the promise and would be fulfilled the covenant. The Israelites are going to be descendants of Shem. And as we see, he was the father of the Shemitic peoples. That's where that comes from, if you've ever wondered. It's saying that someone is anti-Semitic because they hate Jews. Semitic comes from the word Shem. And he would be the father, as we see in a minute, of the Jews, the Ishmaelites, and the Arabian people groups. And then in verse 27, we've got a play on words. He says, may God enlarge Japheth. So he's like saying, may God enlarge Mr. Enlarged. So Japheth, that's what his name means. So he was the father of what are called the Indo-European nations. So from Ireland to Turkey, Russia, down to India even, and eventually now even in America and Australia, although there's been a lot of blending during that time. And there's an interesting thing here. I could preach just this, but it says, Let him dwell in the tents of Shem, which acknowledges that the Japhethites and the Shemites had a much more peaceful relationship than the Shemites and the Hamites, as you'd call them, because out of Ham is going to come Babylon and Egypt and Assyria, and Japheth is going to bring about Greece and Rome, but we know scripturally that they were better friends, I guess you could say. But there's also a prophecy here that the sons of Japheth, in those parts where Japheth settled, they would be the ones who would most widely accept the salvation of Jesus. So Japheth is largely a reference to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would dwell in the tents of Shem, so to speak, right? Salvation is not going to come through us. It's going to come through Brother Shem and his descendants. And really all of us, I, I, there was a great line I heard somewhere along the way where they said, anybody who's a Christian is dwelling in the tents of Shem, regardless of what your ancestry is. But I will say that I'm proud that my ancestors abandoned their culture and their idolatrous gods and turned to the Lord. And I pray that more of that would happen around the world. Verse 28, I want to get to chapter 10. We'll see if we have time. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this is the death of Noah. He was 600 when the flood came. Two-thirds of his life before the flood, one-third after the flood. 
And we will look more closely at the genealogy next week. But if there are no gaps in the genealogy, Noah would live until Abraham was about 58 years old. So that's a long time. We talked four weeks about Noah, and it's unfortunate that we had this episode to talk about, but the Lord does commend him later on as an example of the faith that would be brought to the whole world because God evaluates our lives mercifully, praise the Lord. Aren't you glad? Well, let's go ahead and get to chapter 10. We have just enough time, I think. These are the generations. I hope you recognize the phrase by now. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. You remember that phrase, generations, is toledoth in Hebrew, and it's used to organize the book of Genesis. So we've got a new section that we're beginning after the death of Noah. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Leabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Some of your favorite memory verses in that chapter, right? This is what is called the table of nations. It is not a genealogy, as you can see, but it's a breakdown of who settled where and to whom they were related. This is an entirely unique document in world history. No other culture has anything like this. 
and it is remarkably accurate. Makes sense, it's the Bible. But the more we learn about ancient archaeology, the more it turns out, uh, yeah, he was right. You cannot just dismiss these first 11 chapters. They give us the oldest, the oldest, I guess you could call it, geography of any kind. And as you go through this, many of these cities and these names are easily identifiable. You probably recognized a few, but others are much more confusing. And because there have been thousands of years of intermingling, it's, it's really tough to draw the lines too tightly and say they're there and they were over here. But there are a few things to note here, especially when we get to prophetic passages, particularly Ezekiel 38 makes reference to a lot of nations that are not found anywhere else except right here. So we're going to go through this quickly, but this might be something fun for you to do on your own sometime. So in verses 2 through 5, we have the sons of Japheth. And I'm going to give the modern day locations. These are not the modern day countries because obviously there's been war and people have moved through and everything, but these are the regions that they moved to. Places like Turkey, Armenia, Greece, Cyprus, some of the Phoenician city-states, Italy, and even Spain. And we know from history that they would spread up into Russia, up into Europe, down into India, perhaps as far as the Far East. Everybody's got a different idea of where uh, the Far Eastern cultures, Japanese, Chinese, and Korean, came from, but it doesn't really make much difference to me. <laughs> and it's really interesting to see, too, that both the Greek culture and the Indian culture had a figure in their legends and their histories whose name was very similar to Japheth. The Greeks had a titan whose name was Yapetos, very similar to Japheth, as his name would have been pronounced. In verses 6 through 20, we have the sons of Ham, and this is the longest list, so these four sons help us narrow down the nations. Cush, as I mentioned, we'll see in the Bible a lot, was the father of the African and the South Arabian nations, so the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Later on, Cush is going to be the equivalent of Ethiopia, which is still a country to this day. And Cush had an important descendant named Nimrod. There's more said about him than anybody else in this passage. He was a mighty man and a mighty hunter who founded great cities. And some of these cities, if you write them a little differently phonetically, we actually know a lot of these cities. Babel, he founded Babel, which gave rise to Babylon, of course. Uruk, it says Erech in Hebrew, but Uruk were the people that wrote what's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you've ever heard of that before. That was that city, Uruk. Akkad, maybe you've heard of Sargon of Akkad, or the Akkadian Empire. That's that city. Nineveh, of course, was the capital of Assyria. And all this was in the plains of Shinar. You read through some of the prophets, like Zechariah in particular, he talks a lot about the plains of Shinar, and those are references usually to Babylon. That's Nimrod. And because he was the founder of Babel, it's not going to give his name in the next chapter, but he was probably the guy spearheading the effort to build the Tower of Babel. There are uh, a lot of weird ideas surrounding the person of Nimrod. We're going to address them some next week. There was a book written generations ago that had all these weird speculative ideas about Nimrod and connecting him to the Catholic Church and all kinds of other crazy things. Th these two verses are as much we have in the Bible. So let's stick to what the Bible says, okay? And let's get back to the sons of Cush here. He had another son named Egypt. Egypt is the Greek name. It's actually, the word in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. So if you look at Egypt and the way they pronounce their country today, if I'm not mistaken, it's Matzar. 
So it's kind of like Greece. We just sort of gave it the name that we liked, but that's who Mitzrayim was. His children were the Libyans and the Lydians and various parts of Egypt. So we've got Africa, some of his African nations for the sons of Ham. Egypt says the Philistines. That word in verse 14, it's sort of unclear in the language there because it, it says the Kaftorim and it also says the Kasluhim. Now we know from Amos chapter 9, verse 7, it says that the Philistines came from Kaftor, but in this verse it seems connected to Kasluhim. If you look at the language itself, there's no punctuation, so it's hard to tell where it goes. But it could have been that the Kasluhim and Kaftorim were the same kinds of people. But Kaftor, we know for sure, was Crete, where Titus would go and plant a church later. But that's where the Philistines came from. And you've got Canaan, who fathered Sidon, where Jezebel came from. Thank you for that, Canaan. Some other Phoenician cities. Heth was the father of the Hittites. And pretty much all those other nations were in the Promised Land. The Jebusites were the ones that built Jerusalem and were dwelling there when David got there. So that's Ham and his children. Verses 21 through 31 have the descendants of Shem. And we know that he's going to be the holder of the promise. A lot of these were Arabian nations. There's Assyria. Now he says he built the city of Ashur, which is where Assyria gets its name. But we know that Nimrod came in later and built Nineveh and turned it into an empire. So like, you see what I'm saying? That there's some interplay between these nations. It could be that some of these nations are referring to the Chaldeans, who would later populate Babylon, Syria, Lebanon, modern-day Yemen, the Ishmaelites, and, of course, Israel. That's the big one, right? In verse 25, when it mentions Eber, here's a fun little study for you. He's the one whose genealogy we're going to follow. His son is named Peleg. Eber, if you want to think about it kind of squinting here, Eber would become Ibrim and eventually would become Ebru or Hebrew. So that's where that word comes from. Hebrew was an old word that meant to wander, and it was a derogatory term. A Hebrew was sort of like a nomad or somebody that didn't have a home, but eventually it just became the name of the people. And they got their name from Eber here, whose son was Peleg, and he named him that because the earth was divided at that point. That either refers to the continental drift or to the Tower of Babel. You can be firmly convinced in your own mind as far as I'm concerned. As I said, difficult to be exact here because it's been so long, because names change. A lot of it is like, it might be him, and if it's him, then this is that. But if it's not that, then this is that over here. So it is fun to get into, but the most important thing to get from this is we all come from one family, don't we? There have been people in the past of various kinds and colors and nations who have tried to force Israel out of their status as God's people or to pick this group and say, you can't be God's people because it's us. We're the master race. We're God's chosen people. But this is foolishness biblically. We all come from, as Paul put it, one blood. Acts 17.26 says, God made from one blood every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth is if we needed one more reason to show mercy and to show love to each other. We are all brothers through Noah, through Seth, through Adam. We all come from the same place. These men had children that became nations. These nations misbehaved towards one another over the centuries, but we're still family. That's not hippy-dippy one-world stuff. That's just, you're a, you're a man. 
I'm a man. We're both made in the image of God. What difference does it make how we dress or what country we come from or what language we speak? When Jesus came, he died for all without distinction, which is why we ought to love and forgive one another without distinction. I hope we can learn from the example today from Shem and Japheth, who covered the sin of their father rather than expose it for their own gain. From the way that God evaluated Noah later on, calling him a, a champion of the faith, despite what we know about him. Because the Lord delights in showing mercy. If we're going to live our lives like crabs in a bucket, where we can't let anybody get above us, and we're going to stand on each other in order to get a little bit higher, we're never going to get anywhere. We're going to be constantly reaching back into our past to relitigate it. Well, when we were 12, you did this to me. Man, you do counseling with some people, you'd be amazed how far back some people can reach for stuff people have done. And at some point, someone's got to say, you know what, we're just going to show mercy and call it even so that we can go forward. Someone's got to get off the merry-go-round first because as we have learned, sin goes back to the very beginning. So at some point, someone's got to decide, like Jesus did, I'm going to show mercy and not hold it against you so that we can love one another and be the brothers and sisters that we ought to be. And I think, especially in the days in which we're living, that kind of example is exactly what we need.